0: I'm going to be reading the scripture for us this morning, which is found in Genesis chapter 49 and chapter 50. In verse 1, we have the lead-in to the uh, prophetic blessings that Jacob gives to his sons. And then starting in verse 28, we get into the state funeral of uh, Jacob and his death. And then we'll go into chapter 50 all the way to verse 14. Chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel... This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear saying i'm about to die in my tomb that i hewed out for myself in the land of canaan there shall you bury me now therefore let me please go up and bury my father then i will return and pharaoh answered go up and bury your father as he made you swear so joseph went up to bury his father with him went up all the servants of pharaoh the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of egypt as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful that your love is so deep for me that you want me to spend eternity with you. And God, as we saw in that earlier song, God, you know our, the, our hearts, the hearts of men, and yet you let us live. God, I'm so thankful for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you for the plan that you have had since the beginning of time to bring Christ to be our Savior, to die for our sins and to be resurrected. So God, I praise you. pray that you would be with us, that you would bless us as we hear from your word, that you would bless in the preaching of your word. God, that you would change our hearts, that we would be the clay in your hands as the great potter. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
1: If you're visiting with us this morning, I'd like to say a welcome to you and explain that we've been going through a series in the book of Genesis through the lives of Joseph and Jacob for the last number of months and find ourselves at this particular text on this week, the story of a family funeral. It is the Lord's Day and we all need healing, don't we? I hope that already in this service, through the songs we've been singing, as Art has read the scriptures to us from the Gospels and from the Psalms, that you know the work of the Lord and you know that the authority with which the Word of God speaks to us in all of the different conditions of our soul and of our life. And the Lord gives us this day to grasp his work for a day before we go into all of our work and knowing that he is with us. wonderful phrase, isn't it, that describes the death of Jacob, that he's gathered to his people. It's a description of somebody who ceases in one sense and yet doesn't cease in another sense, right? He's gathered to his people. Didn't just die. Didn't just expire. Didn't just become nobody or nothing. But he was gathered. An active word. Who did the gathering? The Lord did the gathering. And he was gathered to something to his people, it's a, it's a wonderful expression, terminology that is deliberate to describe the death of Jacob. The psalmist says this, perhaps you've heard these words many times over in family settings where they are gathered to remember a patriarch or a matriarch or a family member, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, isn't that wonderful? The Lord looks on an occasion such as this and says, that's precious to me. And it's in his eyes. All all is in his eyes. But this particularly is in his eyes in a a unique way as something precious. And so this is a family funeral, the story of a family funeral. But it is a, a family that is bearing the marks of God's deeds in their lives as we've seen over the course of the last few chapters and all the events and, and things going on in the life of this family now at the curtain call of Jacob's life they are a family that is bearing the marks of providence in a marvelous way in a season of life that every family goes through I think the best way to summarize what the story is about would come from words that are used both in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of First Peter it says this it says all flesh is like grass but the word of the Lord endures forever. Isn't that marvelous? All flesh, not some flesh, all flesh, my flesh, your flesh, all flesh is like grass. It, it, it isn't grass it's not, like, it's not the same as grass in one way. It's not just to be discarded. It has much more dignity and meaning than grass. But in, in some sense, it's like grass. All flesh is like grass. Because it's, it does not endure. But, but, the word of the Lord is not like grass. The word of the Lord endures Forever. And so this story has both of those things. It has flesh that is like grass, and Jacob has gathered to his people, but it also is a story that is about something that endures, about a word that the Lord has spoken to a family, that as a family gathers in honoring and and remembering and obeying in the instructions that are given, they are attached to something that is enduring, that is enduring beyond them. And Jacob, particularly in his words, lays hold of something that is enduring beyond him. And so, this is what I think the main point of the text is. I've only got some of you for a couple of minutes, so I'm going to get to the main point right away. This This is what I think the main point of the story is, that this is a family, in this funeral, a family funeral, and through the display that God has shown them, that he is in control, even when they can't see it, which we've defined as providence, that they're altered. In other words, providence isn't just an idea, a theological feather for our cap, but providence is an experience that this family has gone through that has seen God's intervention in their lives and put its mark upon them in a a very profound way and convinced them that God can be trusted. Very simply, that God can be trusted to fulfill all that he has promised. And that's what Jacob's words to his family is, is all about. I, I trust the Lord. All of his instructions, all of his, the things that he says to his family, and all of the things that his family do in obedience to Jacob, is all centered around this idea that God has proven to us that he can be trusted. And I've titled the word this morning, Great Expectations. Of course, I stole that from Dickens. But he stole it from Christians. Because Christians live with great expectations. And while there's a lot going on in this story, that's the word that I want you to leave with today. I want you to leave with the word anticipation. I want you to leave with this idea of expectation. That Christians live with a sense of expectation, and they also die with a sense of expectation. That, and they don't die without shame, even if the things that they hope in and hope for and have been promised Do not materialize in the time in which they live what's going on in the story is a lot of instruction as jacob instructs his family before he passes and gives all of the words of where the where the grave is where abraham was buried where isaac is buried where leah is married and then the story of the family's obedience to obey all that jacob had asked them to do and honoring my goodness, it's like Pharaoh is being buried in the story of a very great retinue that goes to Canaan with all of the regality and the pomp of Egypt following in its train. But in all of that, the one thing that runs through all of those things, all of the instruction and the obedience and, and the honoring, is this idea of anticipation, of expectation. That Jacob lived and died with an expectation that the promises to his grandfather Abraham would be fulfilled. And when Abraham was called from Haran into the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am Lord Almighty, and I will give to you this land. And so in Jacob's words, there is a sense of anticipation and expectation for the land of Canaan. There's also expectation for the path of the exodus an anticipation of the exodus that is to come under the leadership of Moses under God. As Jacob's body actually follows the path in its embalmed state, it follows the path that the millions of, of his descendants would follow some 400 years from now. This is where we're going to go, around here and across the Jordan, exactly where Moses would lead. God's people. And so there is an anticipation of the exodus. There is also an anticipation of the, of the royalty, of the, of the princely nature that would come from Jacob's line. And that's why all of the uh, the pomp surrounding this particular funeral and the cortege that makes its way from Egypt to Canaan, and all the chariots and all of the dignitaries of Pharaoh in, in line with them are an anticipation, are an expectation of something that God had said to Jacob. When Jacob was traveling, God appeared to him at Paran, and he said, I am Lord God Almighty, and you shall walk before me, and I will make nations come from you, and kings will come from your body." And so what the story is, is an anticipation of all that would issue from the life of Jacob through his family. And, of course, we know that King David comes from the line of Judah, which is one of the 12 tribes. And ultimately, that anticipation is fulfilled in Jesus, who the angel said to Mary, the little baby in your womb is by the Holy Spirit, and he will rule. He'll be a king. He will rule over the house of Jacob. And the Lord has ascended on high as a king, and will return as a king. And you know what Revelation 19 says? That a rider will come on a white horse, and you know what's written on his thigh? He's got a tattoo. King of kings and lord of lords. Don't tattoo that on your thigh. Don't. <laughs> it belongs to him. But he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And so in all of the story, the theme of expectation and anticipation is something that runs through it. And this gathering of Jacob to to his people happens in a literal way, a physical way, as he instructs his family to take him to the tomb of his father and grandfather. And this one tomb now will have three generations in it, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah. So it's a very significant milestone in the history of redemption and the thinking of God's people. In this one tomb are the patriarchs. This is the succession that God's promise was received from, from father to son, from father to son. And then after Jacob, it goes into the 12 tribes. But now through all the rest of the scripture, these three names will be used in an exemplary way, in a very significant way, to not simply refer to the past, but to establish a pattern that was to be followed by all of God's people forever. I am the Lord of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. When Moses saw a burning bush and approached the bush, this is how God identified himself to Moses. I'm that God, and Jesus used the same thing when the people denied the or when the uh, Sadducees denied the resurrection in the New Testament. Jesus quoted Exodus chapter three and said, "God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs. And in this tomb is not just sealed bodies, but sealed a pattern." for God's people to trust God in a particular way that would be true, of course, of all the 12 tribes of Jacob. And it's true for Christians today as well. And this is the pattern. This is what was established in in these three families being gathered together in this tomb. And what issues from there is something that never ever changes through the rest of scripture. It's a very significant point in redemption history, a milestone. And this is it. it, it's all about God. Something that they knew, something that they understood, something that God had showed him about himself. And this is what it is that God is neither flawed in his character, nor is he limited in his capacity to do all that he has said. God is neither flawed in his character, that's just a way of saying God is holy, he's perfect, nor is he limited in his capacity. That's just a way of saying that he is almighty in order to do all that he has promised. and per- That's what this tomb is all about. That's why Jacob says, take me there. That's exactly where I want you to lay me to rest. This is, this is what it signifies to all of the 12 tribes of Israel and for God's people through every generation. There's a, there's a seal of the mark of the identity of how God's people look to God right here in this season of this family. It's a, it's a unique family. It's a holy family. It's a family that we are included into through faith and all of the anticipated is fulfilled of course in Jesus. So in all of that anticipation that I've spoken of I've got two simple points that I'm going to work through. The first is that in anticipation that Jacob dies with and is buried with bears a strong family resemblance to us. And secondly, that it gives us some very practical wisdom for the seasons of life. And I'm going to talk about some of the very, very practical things that that issue from this text that I know are very relevant and very close to the surface for, for some of you. And I believe that there are patterns that are established that are helpful for God's people to examine, that are very practical, in a season of life that that we all go through. The first is this, is the family resemblance. That the family, being marked by this trust in God, means that we have a very strong family resemblance with this family, but not through imitation of this family the path to family resemblance is not through imitation I say this over and over again I'm gonna say it again today that when you open your Bible as a Christian you're looking to be a biblical Christian understand what the Bible says apply what the Bible says that you need more than the tool of imitation in other words you don't open this story say well I want to be a good Christian. I want to be a biblical Christian. I want to know what the Bible says. I'm going to imitate what Jacob did. You need more tools than that. It doesn't work. Simply to imitate. And let, me, let me demonstrate how that doesn't work. I'm from Red Deer. That's home for me. I joke with my wife sometimes. Red Deer's in Alberta for all of you that, that don't know your geography very well. And I joke with my wife over the years, you know, if something happens to me, just throw me in the trunk and take me home. <laughs> just just take, take me back to where I'm from. And of course that would be highly illegal and she would probably go to jail for it. And I'm sure I will probably never be buried in, in Red Deer. And by the way, when I'm, you know, before you leave, and I'm in the trunk and you're headed for Red Deer, uh, call the mayor of Parksville, he'll probably want to come. And tell all of the people of significance and importance in the area that they can come along too. And, and take them all with you. And the people of Red Deer will go, oh my, what's going on over there? Who died? You see, if imitation is all you have, it doesn't work. And then you become the arbitrary and sole decider on where to cut off the line of what is good and what is ridiculous. This isn't a story about Jacob. This is a story about God. And the tool that we have to have to be biblical Christians is to see God in the story. The purpose of telling the story of Jacob is to God to show something that is true about himself. And the reason why there is family resemblance in in us with Jacob is not because we imitate Jacob, but because God never changes. And the very things that Jacob anticipated in all of his death, we have the fulfillment of it, the the richness of it, the things that that Jacob only saw the beginnings of in his life that were attached to material things like land, of which we have the fulfillment of all of it in Jesus. But it's the same God who has only shown us in fuller ways, in more marvelous ways, that, that he can be trusted, that he is not flawed in his character, and that he is not limited in his capacity. And so that's why there is a family resemblance, because everything that Jacob looked forward to is anticipation of the Jesus that we belong to. And it is the same God, where we also are called to, by the, the, the same faith, though, the same thing that was stamped on that tomb, the same idea of an absolute surrender of oneself. Think of Jacob or uh, of Abraham for example and the surrender of his son Isaac on the mountain is true for us today and so there is a very natural family resemblance and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were not merely anticipating that God would give them land but they themselves were anticipating something more than that. You know, so, so God give you land, so what? Who cares? So you're a big man in the land. There's lots of big people in the land. There's lots of princes in the land. So what? Is that all the hope that they had? No. All of the hope that they had in the land was an anticipation. And the same thing with all that Moses introduced to the people. All of it was an anticipation. An anticipation of the Messiah. Of the one who would come. And so Hebrews chapter 11 which is a wonderful chapter to describe so many Old Testament saints and how they anticipated something that, that we find the fulfillment of. It says this, that by faith, Abraham went to live in a land of promise. And he lived in a foreign land, living in tents, it says, with Isaac and Jacob. So the three of them. This, this text in Hebrews 11 gathers the three of them together. And they were heirs together in the same promise, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so that's why there is a family resemblance of an anticipation that when we, when we die, we're trusting in God for something that outlives us. Living with anticipation, or dying with anticipation, dying with expectation, as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, he says, your citizenship, identifying citizenship, your citizenship is in heaven. And that's in contrast to, he says, people who live in this world live for their gut. They live live for their stomach. And a citizenship. What do you, what do you, what do you honor? What are you patriotic to? Well, I'm I'm a citizen of the gut. Basically, it's what Paul is saying there. That's where my identity is. It's where my where what I honor. My gut. Nothing beyond my, my my instincts. My natural impulses. What Paul says, your citizenship is different. It is, it is in heaven. Listen to these words from 1 Peter of uh, and. And the family resemblance of our lives with Jacob in his anticipation. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.4. It says that, that being raised from the dead, Jesus gives us an inheritance. Ever had an inheritance? Well, we've gone through that, my wife and I, in the last few years. And it's a family dynamic in, in, every, <laughs> in every home, isn't it? Is there inheritance? Is there not an inheritance? What do you do with it? Who gets it? But it's just that, right? It's just it's just stuff. And so Jacob was looking for something beyond the land. And the Christian, Peter says, has an inheritance that he says is imperishable. Listen to these words. First one is imperishable. Second one is undefiled. Unfading and kept in heaven for you. The art read earlier from John chapter fourteen. Jesus says, "Don't don't be afraid, because I am going to prepare a place for you." Secondly, I'm going to talk about some of the practical wisdom that comes out of a, a story like this. What does godliness look like in the last season of life? Many have died before the return of Christ. Chances are many of us also, perhaps all of us will die before Jesus comes. What does godliness look like? What is the distinctive mark that would be on our lives as people who have a family resemblance to to Jacob? Let me remind you that this is obedience to things like this, the practical wisdom, and adherence to things like this is not the path to blessing. Okay? So what I'm going to go through here is not intended in any way, I'm on a little bit of, of vulnerable ground here, right? Because we've all gone through occasions like this where we all have had experiences, of decisions have been made and, and decisions are being made and will be made in, in the future. None of this is intended to criticize, to judge anybody in, in the way that your family has has gathered. This is not... The path to blessing, the path to blessing is through faith in Christ. That is given to us by faith. And so we are here not in the realm of law, we're simply in the realm of wisdom. But asking, I think, a relevant question, what does wisdom look like? What is wisdom in this particular season of life? And it is something that, of course, is to be ruled and governed. Hope that we are grafted into this family and share the same hope as they do eternally in Jesus. And that we grieve without despairing, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. The body here is clearly honored, but not idolized. Can you see the difference between what you would see, for example, if you went to Egypt today, saw the Pharaoh's tomb, and the way that the Israelites lived and the way that they treated their the body of of Jacob. The body is to be honored but not idolized. God gave us the body. It was his gift to us. And it should be honored without being idolized. And it's interesting how Joseph honors the body. He uses the technology of Egypt to embalm the body because That's what he needed to do. He needed a way in order to respect the body of his fathers to get it to to Canaan. And so he used the... It's a wonderful example of godly uh, practicality. He used the technology that was available to him in in, in Egypt without embracing all of the ideology that went along with burying a pharaoh and embalming them in, in in a crypt to be preserved forever. It's a wonderful example of simple practical usefulness of the resources at hand without without embracing or without abandoning the greater thing that is uh, the hope of Israel. Buried in the scripture is normalized but not enshrined. In other words, there are, it seems to be the normal pattern that through the, the scriptures, if, they, if it's available, if, if families are able to, that they bury their father, bury their bury their family. It's normalized. But it's not enshrined. And that's of course the realization that 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 the Lord has departed. I mean the body has the soul has left the body and been gathered to their people. And there are interesting stories in the Bible, for example Moses. Moses in the last book of Exodus, he died and he was buried by the Lord. And so his body was honored but never allowed to be enshrined. Because nobody knew where it was. Imagine if Moses' body, if they knew where the grave was and the enshrining that would take place. And so if you have a place that marks the resting place of a loved one, thank the Lord for that. You know, we have that in, in our family. But it needs to be something that directs you to the Lord and not merely to the past. And sometimes those things are helpful for families in the generations to come. I like the fact that when nations in the world have declared themselves to be non-Christian and that God is dead, they've had to go through the entire nation and chisel crosses off of tombstones in every town and village across the country. I like that. Because Christians have died in such a way, and left their mark in a distinctive way that says there's something that we believe, even in their death. And in Canada, if we were ever to in our future have a revisionist history done with people who said that God has never had anything to do with this country. I would love for them to have to go through our country and chisel millions of crosses off of all kinds of things in order to try to eliminate the mark of faith that people have left them even as they have departed from this world. So the body is to be honored, but not idolized. Mourning, grieving is appropriate clearly again normalized in the scripture the grieving is to be without despair of course as the apostle paul says there's a distinctiveness to our mourning but it is not itself a sign of weakness a sign of failure it again is a way of honoring what god has given as a gift to a family through the lives of a particular individual and there's pain It's also a significant reminder, that pain, to the Christian. Every time somebody dies, there's something wrong with this world. There's still something wrong with this world. People are still dying. The effects of the fall are still being carried out. There's need for a savior. There's need for redemption from this very thing. And mourning is helpful and appropriate. Even our Lord Jesus, of course, wept and did not condemn the sisters for their mourning of their sister, of their brother Lazarus. Instructions are helpful. And the t- chapter gives a quite a lengthy example of the instructions that Jacob gives to his family. But instructions are helpful. To have honest conversations about the fact that we're not going to live forever. So that your family isn't left, well, what do we do? I wonder what that person would have wanted. Instructions are helpful. It's not, there's nothing Christian about pretending that we're never going to die. It's Christian to acknowledge that all flesh is like grass. But there is an anticipation and a hope that outlives the bodies that are like grass. And in the instruction, there's something significant in Jacob's words. And it is this. That his faith rules over all sentimentality in his life. He says this to his family. He says, bury me in the tomb, gives the location where my father and his wife and grandfather and his wife and Leah is buried. Leah. Remember Leah? Leah was Jacob's wife that he did not desire first. He loved Rachel, but he was given Leah. And so if sentimentality governed and ruled, it would be, bury me with Rachel. She died on the road, giving birth to Benjamin. There's a lot of there's a lot of sentimental attachment there. There's a lot of things that would draw the heart there. But there was something that that ruled and and governed that was over top of the emotions and the sentimental feelings in Jacob's life. And it was his faith for his family to see his faith. I want to be buried here. And that's a significant thing to consider in instructions that are given to a family. There are a lot of things that that are sentimental to us in our lives. But it is something distinctively Christian, and I believe normalized in the scripture, that is a pattern for godly Christian life in this season of life, to to have something distinct, perhaps simple as a Christian service, or an obituary published publicly that uses the scriptures, and different ways that, we can uh, continue to identify our faith, even in and after our passing. So in conclusion, anticipation of Jesus, that Christ has established our inheritance and given us a spirit as as a deposit that guarantees all that is to come. And so to live as a spirit-filled Christian, means to live with that sense of expectation, to live with a sense of anticipation, and to leave this world with a sense of anticipation. But I don't want to end on the idea of a funeral because in the Christian life, there is so much expectation while we yet live. In other words, the Christian life isn't go home and put our feet up and say, I'm a Christian, and when Jesus comes, I'm going to be with him. Have that expectation. That is a wonderful part of the Christian hope, that when we die, if Jesus comes, we're going to be with him. But there is an anticipation of the kingdom of God now in the life of the believer. As we sow ourselves into death, death to oneself, death to this world, that we expect and anticipate that God will give us the kingdom of God. And I hope we live with that kind of of expectation, not just when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus, but that while I live, I'm going to experience something of the kingdom of God, something of the reign and the rule and the authority and the power of God in the world in which I live. And Jesus in Luke 12 says, fear not, my flock, I have given you the kingdom of God. And it's something that we should anticipate. It's something that we should expect. It's why we, it's why we labor. It's why we toil. It's why we work. It's why we pray. It's why we give. It's why we, we support uh, missions. Andrea Linwall, one of our own, looking to go to Italy to work on the streets in Italy with women who are caught up in the, in the sex trade. Fantastic thing. Why would we be excited about something like that? Because we're anticipating not only something in our death, we're anticipating something now. We're anticipating a harvest in the kingdom of God. And so let's anticipate. Let's live uh, our lives with expectation of something of the kingdom of God. Would you please pray with me? The great and mighty God, thank you that the kingdom, your kingdom, is unthwartable. It's all dominion, authority, and power. Lord, help us to live with that hope. And also to leave this world with that same hope. Grant us wisdom, I pray, as people and our families, our children, our grandchildren, the conversations that we have and the decisions that are made and the instructions that are given. Lord, help us to find your paths. Help us to be secure that Jesus has paid it all and that we belong to him. And yet, Lord, help us to find the, the marks, the distinctiveness that bear the fruit of that belonging. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.